Hello and welcome to Muscular Christianity, your digital home for inspiration, perspiration, and transformation. I'm your host, Bruce Gust, and today's broadcast is brought to you by Loose Cannon Fitness, the tempo-driven approach to exercise that produces real results. Check it out at loosecannonfitness.com. Let's talk about the Civil War. That's what we're talking about in this broadcast of Muscular Christianity. And let me add that what you're about to hear is an abbreviated version of the blog you can find at muscularchristianityonline.com. And you'll also find a link to the essay bearing the same title. I'm trying to keep all this kind of brief. But here's where I want to make a point. So buckle up. First of all, this was all prompted by a conversation I had with a friend of mine who responded to my having said I had just finished reading a book about Abraham Lincoln by saying that my subsequent perspective on the Civil War and our nation's 16th president was inevitably flawed and I needed to come to grips with the fact that Lincoln was a conspirator and the Civil War was fought over the issue of states' rights and how they had been unjustly defined or denied rather to the South, which resulted in the bloodiest conflict in our nation's history. I didn't agree with him, but rather than just saying, oh yeah, I decided to pop the hood on some other resources and attempt to arrive at an informed bottom line that could stand up under critical scrutiny. But here's the thing, it's not just history. The Civil War teaches a lesson that has profound implications to the way in which absolutes are either embraced or shunned. And that's why this this topic intrigued me so, and that's why I'm so enthusiastic about sharing it. Are you ready? Here we go. What was it that prompted the South to secede from the Union? Some are adamant in saying that the South had been subjected to several injustices. They'll point to economic issues, they'll refer to political tensions, but regardless of the issue, once you pop the hood on their proposed cause of the war, inevitably you'll find that every source of friction was either generated by or agitated by the institution of slavery. In an article entitled Fort Sumter, The Civil War Begins, which you can find at smithsonianmag.com, author Fergus M. Bordowitz says, generations of historians have argued over the cause of the war. Everyone knew at the time that the war was ultimately about slavery, says Orville Vernon Burton, a native South Carolinian and author of The Age of Lincoln. After the war, some began saying that it was really about states' rights or a clash of two different cultures or about the tariff or about the industrializing North versus the agrarian South. All these interpretations came together to portray the Civil War as a collision of two noble civilizations from which black slaves had been airbrushed out. African-American historians from Webb Dubois to John Hope Franklin begged to differ with the revisionist view, but they were overwhelmed by white historians, both Southern and Northern, who during the long era of Jim Crow largely ignored the importance of slavery in shaping the politics of secession. Here's the thing. Were there economic issues or tensions, rather, between the North and the South leading up to the Civil War? Well, certainly. Among the most cited controversies was the Tariff of Abominations, put into law by President John Quincy Adams in 1828. It was vehemently opposed by the South because of the way they perceived it as a piece of legislation that favored Northern industries and put an undue amount of strain on the Southern economy. John C. Calhoun was Vice President under Adams and also under Andrew Jackson, Adams' successor. Calhoun authored an essay entitled South Carolina Exposition and Protest, where he declared that it was a state's right 
to exempt itself from any federal law that was considered to be unconstitutional. Calhoun wasn't able to get the kind of traction that he had hoped for as far as circumventing the tariff, but his essay would provide the South with a seemingly coherent template upon which to base their right to secede, which would become an issue later. The constitutional the constitutionality of his argument was subjective, but here's the thing. At the core of his argument was a determination to protect what he referred to as the South's, quote, peculiar domestic institution, unquote, which was slavery. And this is where it gets kind of kind of sinister. He says, he says as much in a piece of correspondence he wrote to Virgil Maxey, a political ally from Maryland, on September 11th, 1830. In his candid letter, he refers to slavery as the, quote, peculiar institution of the southern states. Check it out. This is what he writes. He says, I consider the tariff but as the occasion rather than the real cause of the present unhappy state of things. The truth can no longer be disguised that the peculiar domestic institution of the southern states, which was slavery, and the consequent direction which that and her soil and climate have given to her industry have placed them in regard to taxation and appropriations in opposite relation to the majority of the Union against the danger of which, if there be no protective power in the reserved rights of the states, they must in the end be forced to rebel or submit to have their permanent interests sacrificed, their domestic institutions subverted by colonization and other schemes, and themselves and children reduced to wretchedness. Thus situated, the denial of the right of the state to interfere, interfere constitutionally in the last resort more alarms the thinking than all other causes. You know, so it wasn't dollar signs as much as it was slavery that exacerbated what history would later call the nullification crisis. And the same thing applies to the political and philosophical turmoil that was prevalent in the early 1860s. By the time the nation was preparing to choose its commander-in-chief in 1860, there were four political parties, the Northern Democrats, the Southern Democrats, the Republican Party, and the Constitutional Union Party. Each party was defined according to its stance on slavery. Let me say that again. Each party was defined according to its stance on slavery. The catchphrase that was often being introduced into the rhetoric of the day was, quote, states' rights, unquote. Basically, it boiled down to the right of a state to govern itself without federal interference. The South had a point. No doubt, even Abraham Lincoln agreed with the concept of states' rights being absolute and eternally right, but it had no application to the institution of slavery. And when states' rights were being asserted as a legal tactic designed to somehow justify and protect slavery, it was no longer a credible argument. And this is where the tension became downright volatile. According to John Randolph, who represented the state of Virginia in Congress between 1799 and 1833, slavery was a question of life and death. It was more than just a talking point. It defined the political landscape, and while it automatically, and, and while it automatically categorized you according to a particular party, it also reflected your philosophical and spiritual convictions as well. The Civil War was the bloodiest conflict in the history of the United States. The overall population of the nation would be reduced by 2% before the conflict concluded. That's a lot of carnage. To accept the cause of the Civil War as a mere economic tension complicated by different interpretations of the Constitution is to marginalize the profound impact a distorted perspective on absolute truth can have on a nation. And listen, before I get into this, just imagine for a minute, you're either a Confederate soldier or a Northern soldier. You're not going to 
be willing to continue in, in all that garbage and, and all the horror of war based on something that's nothing more than some lofty economic slash political concept. There was so much more to this. The Civil War was ultimately fought over the war in which a human being was to be defined. And the differences between the opposing viewpoints on that subject were ultimately rooted in one's regard for the truth as defined by the Word of God. All right, here we go. As a proponent of slavery, you were required to gloss over scriptures such as Genesis 1, 26-28 and Galatians 3, 28, which says that all men are made in the image of God. Exodus 21, 16 uh, articulates a prohibition of kidnapping. 1 Timothy 1, 10 says those who enslave others are condemned. Now, some will try to take the passages that mention slavery as being proof that God endorsed the enslavement of human beings. Not so. The passages that are often cited are those found in the New Testament where Paul is admonishing both slaves and overseers to exhibit Christian characteristics towards one another, and in that way, you change the institution from within. Both divorce and slavery are mentioned in Scripture in terms of how to conduct yourself should you be obligated to endure either of those social statuses. Those verses are not there as a way to endorse those situations. Rather, they're in place to encourage a Christ-like disposition in, in the face of the sinful realities of the day. Slavery was condemned in the Bible because it violated the fact that all men are made in the image of God and thus bear his likeness. To abuse or to murder or to enslave another human being was to desecrate a truth that was both, both foundational and absolute. So, here, here's the conclusion, guys. What makes this topic so important and is that unless you broaden your powers of perception to appreciate the true cause of the Civil War, you miss the lesson and the warning contained therein. John C. Calhoun was more concerned about the law than he was the truth. He hoped to secure a legal accommodation for a practice that was fundamentally wrong. And guys, we can go off on that tangent for quite some time just by taking a look at some of the recent decisions of the Supreme Court. The law is subordinate to the truth. The law should serve the truth. And when you get those two backward, you wind up with some really funky legislation. All right, The political parties of the day were more concerned about votes than they were about the truth. Positioning a lie in a way that is palatable and thus popular doesn't change the fact that it's still a lie and will ultimately produce death. The cause of the Civil War was that we had allowed ourselves as a nation to tolerate not just slavery, but a departure from the biblical truths were ultimately based on national... I'm sorry, let me say this again. The cause of the Civil War was that we had allowed ourselves as a nation to tolerate not just slavery, but a departure from the biblical truths we ultimately based our natural and personal identities upon. The willingness to endure the horror of war requires a resolve founded on a core belief. Political concepts and economic preferences are revealed as ridiculous and trivial in the face of the screams and the shrieks heard in combat. It is the truth, and only the truth, that can sustain a cause and a nation, and should that truth be challenged by a dynamic that seeks to dismiss or to distort, that dynamic needs to be addressed and defeated. Should it be allowed to endure, the result will be lethal, and that which is good and noble will be replaced with corruption and decay. The cause of the Civil War was willingness on the part of some to embrace iniquity and the impasse it created when opposed by those who knew better. The lesson of the Civil War 
is to embrace the absolutes of God's Word and to deploy a godly passion in defeating those forces that seek to undermine the foundation upon which we are built, both personally and nationally, and to do it before it becomes a bloody conflict. I'm Bruce Gust. This is Muscular Christianity. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next time. Let's go make a difference.